Amen. Good morning. Are we all loving the snow? <laughs> Mixed response. Um, man, what a wonderful day. Um, I don't know where Nick can... Oh, hey, Nick. Okay. <laughs> I'm used to you seeing you over there. Um, it's just been such an amazing thing to see just God do a, a work in your life. I, I just, I mean, every baptism we celebrate, um, every changed life we celebrate. Um, but for five years, you know, having you guys here and just, you know, I'm preaching at Nick every week, like, come on, Nick, you can do it. And then, you know, finally he goes away and hears some other preacher, and <laughs> it's okay, it's fine. It's like when you're raising kids, and uh, you tell them, and tell them, and tell them, and tell them, and then finally, like, you know, the youth pastor tells them, and it's like they heard it for the first time. Um, it's good, it's good. We're all in it together, working together, um, love it. So... Um, we're talking about this issue of sin, which is everybody's favorite topic. Um, we don't want to make eye contact today, but the issue came up a couple weeks ago in our Sunday school class. We're talking about different sins and different, you know, um, sexual sins in particular that we were dealing with and, and the, the issue of, you know, why, why do we make a bigger deal out of some than others? Um, is there really, you know, a, a difference? And uh, so we're started to kind of unpack that a little bit. And uh, there's a term um, in philosophy which is called equivocation. I don't know if you've heard this term, but e equivocating is when we change the meaning of a word mid-sentence. And you kind of throw people off. It kind of obscures the word so that um, you can, you, it's basically a tactic that people use to try to throw people off and win an argument. Um, but we, we equivocate, which means that sometimes we're talking about sin and we don't really mean sin. Sometimes when we're talking about sin, what we really mean is salvation. And so what the Bible says is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've heard that. Um, and the Bible tells us that um, in James that if you break one command, you're guilty of breaking all the law. And, and so when we talk about sin, a lot of the time what we really are really trying to get at is the issue of the separation that we have between us and God because of sin that we can't overcome in our good works. So um, we understand that in Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. So no one can boast. You, no one can bridge the gap between you and God by your own effort, by your own uh, ability, by your own determination, by your own you know, self-will. You just can't do it. So you picture it like this. Like there's a gap um, that it's kind of like a chasm. You know, if you've ever seen or been to the Grand Canyon, you know, it's kind of this huge just just gap between you and God. You're on one side and God's on the other side of this chasm. And uh, it, there's like, it's a mile wide. And no matter what you do, you cannot by your own strength get over the chasm. Okay. You can take a running start. How far are you going to get if you take a running start and try to jump over this chasm? Who, who's, who's, who's a long jumper in here? Anybody? What's the, what's the longest, you know, you can jump if you, just by taking a running start? Three feet? <laughs> That's kind of pathetic. Uh, we should be able to jump maybe, what, 10 feet? Is that right? 12? 20? 20. Okay. Wow, that'd be pretty good. I mean, you're thinking forward, not down. Okay. Anyway, 20 feet. So, and then Kurt said he was a pole vaulter back in the day. Um, so, anybody else do pole vaulting? I just respect that so much. How, how much courage it takes to take this little pole and jam it into whatever that thing is at the base of the, the thing, right? <laughs> Running and then to launch yourself with this thing and try to go. I mean, just I find that fascinating that somebody would do this. Like, who dared who? 
to, hey, take this stick and see how far you can get with it. I mean, it's just crazy. But if you could pole vault, I mean, how far would you get across the chasm? I mean, it's a mile wide. You're, you're going to get, you know, a few more feet than 20, I guess. I don't know. You take your, your little uh, motorbike and you try to ramp over this thing. You're just not going to get over it by anything that you do. And this is the idea. It's an unbridgeable gap from your side. You cannot do anything to get. But the idea is that what if you get further than somebody else, right? If you miss by a mile or you miss by 10 feet or you miss by two inches, you're still, you're still in the, the chasm. You've, you've missed it. So that's the idea of, well, all sin separates us from God. It doesn't really matter what sin it is if it all separates us from God. That's the idea that they're kind of all the same. But the, the other idea is that in order for us to get across this chasm, that God in his grace and power and mercy and wisdom, he has to bridge the gap for you. And he has done that through Jesus Christ, that he has come all the way across to enable you to get safely to the other side, to be with him. So that's the idea, but that's not the same thing as what we're talking about when we try to dive into the the definition, the understanding, the difference, the different consequence, the different reactions that sins have in our life. So on one hand, sin ultimately separates us from God. That's salvation. But on the other hand, sins that we commit in our life separate us from God in fellowship. And that's the thing that we oftentimes we don't really talk about because we're so focused on salvation, we're so focused on getting to heaven that we, we oftentimes will miss the reality that sin that you have in your life that you haven't worked out, that you haven't given to God, that you haven't repented of, that... that uh, we are still struggling with in some way, shape, or form is causing problems in our life. But because the church and pastors, uh, we are so down on sin, we tend to pretend like we're all good. We want to be blissful, blissfully ignorant of, of each other's problems and sin so that we can all act like we, we all got it together because we don't want to be judged by other Christians. Or I don't want to deal with other people telling me, you know, that my life isn't as good as it should be or I'm not doing the things that I should. There are often times that I go into public places and settings where I don't tell people purposely that I'm a pastor because I know as soon as I do, there's all kinds of expectations about how I should be. And I'm not usually, I mean, I'm not like a horrible person, but... I'm not the typical pastor personality I think that people expect. And so when they learn that I'm a pastor, like, oh, you're a pastor? Well, I thought you were supposed to be, like, you know, nice or I don't know, whatever they think. <laughs> I'm not mean. I'm not typically mean. Um, we all have issues. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll, a lot of the time when we're dealing with sin, we're, we're like, we're trying to pretend like we don't have issues because we don't want to deal with the fact that I have some work to do. Jesus did all the work to get me into heaven, but I still have work to do to get rid of some of the, the worldly stuff that I'm dealing with. Amen? So we've got to talk about some of that because we need to continue to work out our salvation um, on a daily basis. So let's look at what uh, Colossians says. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5. Let's uh, stand as we read God's word this morning. It says this, says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but 
Christ is all and in all. And Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, help us to dive into the meaning, the understanding, um, that we might be better, better equipped, um, safer, Lord, that we might have an understanding of the, the guardrails that you have established and put up for us to keep us in close fellowship with you and, and with one another, that we might uh, not hurt ourselves with the things of the world that are uh, dark and deadly and dangerous and destructive, Lord. Uh, we want to honor you with our life. We want to reflect Christ. Uh, Lord, help us to do that in a way that is honest, uh, where grace is exalted, Lord, that, that your goodness to us is exalted, not our, our self, Lord, that we're not trying to be something that we're not, not trying to pretend. Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would... Uh, demolish that uh, that stereotype of the hypocritical Christian, uh, Lord. That we would um, not not give a, a, any foothold to sin in our life, but that we would also not pretend that we don't have sins that we're dealing with, um, but to lay it out on the table and just be authentic and honest for Your glory, for our sake, for the world's sake. They might see Christ in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, put to death, um, kind of an intense terminology, I think. Uh, when you're talking about uh, something dying, uh, if you've actually participated in something dying, then you understand, like, this is not an uh, a, a easy term. This is not something that, he, you know, we're talking about. Well, it'd be nice if you kind of... You know, we're a little more serious about your sin. I mean, he's talking about uh, the, the reality that in those days they had an understanding of things having to die because of sin. Because back then they were still familiar with all the sacrificial systems that were going on. Animals were dying for sin. They were being slaughtered. Their blood was being poured out. They were participating. They were standing right there. They had to put their hands on it because back in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve before sin entered the world, he said, if you sin, you will die. In, in Romans, it says that uh, the, the wages of sin is death. So there's this close connection that sin is going to result in death. Satan's lie was that, well, you won't really die, right? You won't really die. And that was kind of a subtle little attack because what happened was they didn't immediately die, but they did eventually die. But the reality was that God's economy was sin requires death. And so what the Bible also says is that without the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness of sin. There has to be a blood payment for sin. And then you introduce all the sacrificial systems that are intended to show the reality that Sin equals death. That was the whole point of, of killing lambs and goats and bulls and birds and all the rest of it, pouring out their blood and burning their fat and, you know, all the things that they were doing. It was to show clearly that death was required when sin was committed. And they, they got that. They understood that. And so as that message became very clear, then we had the ultimate reality, which is that all those birds and animals and, and goats and lambs and all that being killed, that was not the point. That was basically a symbol of the reality of Jesus Christ, that the perfect sacrifice that God would provide for us, that his blood shed one time for all, that everyone who receives him can have the payment paid, and they never have to have the payment paid again. It is paid once, paid for all. Now, what happens is a couple things. One is that we have less of a picture of the reality of death being the result of sin than they did back in biblical times, back when this was written. Because we're so far removed from that event, we didn't see it, and we haven't had to pay with blood since. So we, we kind of have a problem in the, the New Testament church, and especially in the 21st century, that we take grace for granted. 
And, and, and so the Bible is, is pretty clear that sin is so serious, it requires the ultimate price, and here's the price, and God's giving it to you freely, and you can have it, it, it just by receiving it by faith. That's all it's required. But we, we tend to take that like, well, sin's not really a big deal because it's just, it's been paid for. And, and we don't have the same kind of, of sense of urgency to get sin paid for, taken care of, removed so that we can have a close relationship with God because it's just so accessible. Anytime you want it, you can just pray, God, please forgive me, and he's going to receive your prayer, and he's going to receive you into fellowship, and, and boom, it's done, it's over. And so grace becomes what we call, you know, cheap. It's cheap grace. It's easy. And that becomes kind of a problem when we start dealing with particular sins because we don't sense that sin really has much of an, of an urgency or an issue with us. But what Paul is trying to give us an understanding of here in verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, is this issue that when Christ died, um, this is kind of a weird thing, but when Christ died, you also died with him. So when he says, put to death what's earthly in you, he's, he's referring back to this, this reality that when I put my faith in Jesus, it's not just that, that this is a thing that happened 2,000 years ago back in Israel. This is something that when I believe it, when I trust it, when I receive it, then what I'm saying is I also was on that cross with Christ dying that his death is somehow my death, that my sin was taken to hell when he, he descended into hell. And my old self that used to live, that used to, to enjoy sin and, and to uh, be lost and not believe and, and not accept God's will for my life, that old person died on the cross and it's done with. And then when he rose from the dead, then, then I also rose from the dead. I became a new creature in Christ. So when you are baptized, that's the symbol that you see. It's the symbol that God gave us. He says, when you are baptized, you're going to be plunged under water. This is why immersion is so important when, when he, he gave us this symbol, because you're going to the grave. Your old self is dead and buried, and the water is a symbol of the grave. And when you rise out of that, you are raised with Christ, just like he came out of that tomb. So you are now a new creature in Christ. This is your what we call your theological, this is your reality. This is, this is your, your, um, your state of real being. I am this new person. Yet, <laughs> do you, does anybody still struggle with sin? Any, any born-again, mature, biblically knowledgeable Christians still struggle with sin? From time to time? Like once a year, maybe, or something? <laughs> so there's this ultimate reality, which is my salvation, and then there's my daily walk. I'm working it out. I'm dealing with the earthly nature within me that still has to be consistently dealt with. And the way we deal with it is that he says, put, put to death the things that are still driving a wedge between you and God. You're saved, you're going to heaven, you have, you have all that you need as far as what it's going to require to step through the gates of glory, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit to give you knowledge, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit to help you. So what's going on here is that while I understand who I am in Christ, I'm a new creature in Christ, I also have to uh, apply that on a daily basis, which means that I have to put to death my old sinful nature on a daily basis. What, what does that mean? It, it means that I have to see myself as being dead to sin. This is what Scripture tells us. You're dead to that. You're no longer a slave to sin. Now you are a slave to righteousness. Do we feel like we are slaves to righteousness? I mean, it's, it's hard to get to that, that idea like, oh, I'm pursuing. But here's what it is. It is, God, what is your will? I want to, every morning when I wake up, I want to ask God, what do you want me to do today? 
What do you want me to not do today? How do you want me to live for you? What, what, is, what is the purpose of my life from this point forward is just to reflect Christ, to honor Christ, to, to be a person that, that God has saved and God will use. And so I'm going to continue to seek out that plan and path, which does not include doing the things that I used to do when I didn't know him. I can't mix those things. When those things begin to creep into my life or the, the desire begins to grow, I have to begin to deal with that and recognize it, bring it to the Lord, repent of it, move away from it. But in order to do that, you have to define it. And so part of this is, are there different sins and, and are, they, are they categorically more or less severe what do they do in your life? Are they all equal? Is any one particular sin? Are they just, they all do the same thing or do they do different things? And so why does Paul in this verse, verse 5, begin to outline sexual sin? This is where everybody starts to look down. No eye contact. I, I, I tell you what, when I sit in the congregation and, uh, and somebody's preaching and they look at me, Man, I feel uncomfortable. Does anybody else feel that way? John, do you feel that way? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so the thing about sexual sin is that we say in the church, like, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. And then people say, well, why is it a big deal? And the reason why is because the Bible tells us that when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Have you ever heard that before? You sin against your own body, your own self. And here's why that's important is because you are made in the image of God. And, and so what that refers to is why here it says that all these things, it says um, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, idolatry means that there is a reflection or an image of a false god. It's a representation, a physical representation of a false god. But you are not an idol in that sense. You are the, the right, true image of God in the world. He, he made you in his image, which means that when he made human beings, he said, here is going to be the representation of God in the world. The, the physical reality of, that reflects who God is. That's human beings. So that's why he says, don't ever make an idol. Don't ever make an image of God. Because, because why? Because he already stamped his image on us. And then we fell into sin, but we're still made in the image of God. But it got kind of messed up. So when we receive Christ, what does he do? He puts the Holy Spirit in us to restore that image so that you and I as Christians can reflect Christ in the world. Right? We understand this? So Paul says, how can I, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm the image of God, I'm the representation of, of God to the world, not just God, but also of, of the reality of Jesus Christ to the world. How can I take this temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in me, he's, as a Christian, that he, he fills me, he, he has restored me, he has regenerated me, he has made me a new creation. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to join that with a prostitute, is what Paul says, you know, because a lot of the sexual immorality that was going on was related to a false worship, temple prostitutes and things like that. I'm going to take the image of God and I'm going to combine it in a sexually immoral way with something like that. what I'm doing is I'm taking God into a perverse, immoral situation. How can I do that? Doesn't doesn't make sense that I I shouldn't be able to do that. And so what he says is sexual sin is a, especially a problem because it is inherently divisive between you and God. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit more than anything else? Sexual sin. Because the Holy Spirit is in you and you're sinning against yourself. So that's why he, he makes such a point to, to outline that and talk about that and make sure people understand how, 
how important it is to get a picture of what's really happening there. It's especially divisive between you and God, and it's especially divisive between you and your closest relationships, especially marriage. A sexual sin in marriage is the only sin or the only reason why Jesus ever gave for a valid divorce. So people are getting divorced left and right for all kinds of reasons. He said the only reason that somebody really should get divorced is if there's sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. That happens, then basically God says, that's a tough one. God says that. That's a tough one to get over. You can get over it. God can forgive it. You can be restored. It's, I've seen it. It can happen. But man, it is hard. So it's a big one, right? It's a, sexual sin is a big issue. Let's talk about some other sins uh, now that we're all squirming. Um, there's a sin of ignorance. You realize that? In our culture, we, uh, we don't think that if you do something ignorantly or accidentally that it's really a sin. You, you, you see that going around? Anybody? <laughs> I used this illustration earlier. I don't know if everybody was being completely honest or not. In, in theory, it, okay, here, here's what it is. You walk into a store, you accidentally bump into the... Uh, a display and something falls off and breaks. Are you responsible to pay for that? <laughs> In theory, the re- re- response is yes. What if it's really expensive? <laughs> no. I mean, and in, in, in the reality is that we tend to think, well, I don't know if I didn't mean to. So we take the thing to the counter and we say, you know, I bumped into the, the display and this fell off and it broke and here it is. And what, what do you think we should do about this? And the hope is, right? That's fine. I mean, yeah, the things happen. Like your kids, you, you have little kids that run around stores crazy and, and you, they break things. And you're like, oh, are you, you running around paying for all that stuff? I mean, that, in theory, you know, we say, yeah, that you're responsible. You, even if it's accidental, you broke it, you buy it, right? But in reality, we're like, I really hope they don't make me pay for this because I really didn't mean to. Now, that's different than if you go in there and you start taking stuff and throwing it on the ground and busting it all. Then you're, now you're a criminal. Now you're not only paying for it, now you're paying fines, now you're going to jail and all the rest of it, Right? But we make this huge distinction between things that I meant to do intentionally and things I didn't mean to do that were unintentional, that if they're unintentional, if they're accidental, or even just ignorant, I didn't even know that I'm not responsible for that. I'm just really responsible for the stuff that I meant to do, right? Is this not, you're not getting this? Or? Well, the Bible says that even the stuff that you're ignorant of, even the stuff that you were unintentional about, you're still guilty of. You're still responsible for. That there's still a payment that's required. Now, in Numbers chapter 16 or 15, you can go and you can look this up. I'm not going to go through it all. But in Numbers 15, it talks about when somebody sins unintentionally or the whole community or the whole nation of Israel sins unintentionally, here's what you do. Here's the sacrifice that you give, and then you can be forgiven. But then it says, if you sin intentionally and you are in disobedience and you just sin because you want to, then there's a whole different set of consequences and they are much worse than if you did it unintentionally. Still responsible, but one requires more of a responsibility than the other, okay? So then you go into a whole other area of disobedience. Disobedience means that I don't agree with the rule. I... I just don't want to do what, what God's telling me to do. You ever feel that way? Never. When our kids were little, um, you know, we had different ways that we would deal with different situations. And, uh, you know, as they were growing up, sometimes, a lot of times, they would spill things, break things. You know, they would just, you know, just be careless or whatever would happen. And, and we did not punish them 
for things that they did unintentionally, like just spilling something. That was not like they were, weren't being bad. It was just that they didn't have, you know, whatever, the ability to control that, that thing that they were handling. So, okay, it's still frustrating, right? But we're not going to punish them for that. But disobedience, so here's what we always said was we ask you one time to do something. If you don't do it, then you're in disobedience and you're going to be punished. Like, it's not, we're not going to ask you twice. It doesn't happen. Like, you're told to do this. If you don't do it, it's disobedience. And it really isn't about the thing that we're asking them to do or telling them to do. It's really about their heart. They're being disobedient, and that needs to be disciplined. And so they would be punished for disobedience immediately. And it, it was, didn't matter what it was. It was just if you, we told you to do something and you don't do it, then that's disobedience and there's punishment. There's discipline. So God, he does differentiate in those things. When you sin ignorantly, there's a little bit more grace and mercy than when you are defiant and when you are disobedient and you just don't want to do what he's telling you to do. Now, here's the deal. This is very strange phenomena. Um, Christian people who love God can still disagree with things that God has said in His Word and, and that are in His will and still be Christian. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any Christians because <laughs> there are things that we all kind of, we do, we do. Uh, I don't think there's probably too many people that are only sinning unintentionally. Right? Am I wrong about that? So we see this happen in our life, but we have to address the issue that when I am in disagreement with God and His Word, then either I'm wrong or His Word is wrong. Which one do you think is probably more likely to be wrong? And there are things that we don't always understand, and there's things that we're like, I can't really grasp how God is, you know, He's saying this or doing that, but listen, He has a blessing for obedience, and He has a discipline for disobedience. He still loves you and you're still saved, but when you're in disobedience, then what happens is you have fractured the relationship between you and God and He wants you to repair it. He, he will offer all the grace and mercy and forgiveness that is available, but you have to meet Him with repentance, with agreement, with saying, God, I, I didn't understand that or I didn't agree with it. I'm sorry. I come back to you and please forgive me and restore me. Living in disobedience means that you're going to get farther and farther and farther away from understanding the things of God's Word because you're frustrating the Holy Spirit when you're disagreeing. I, I see this happen with people, pastors, whole churches, whole denominations will begin to just to stray so far from God and His Word. And you're like, how does this happen? It's because they began to disagree with one thing in God's Word, what He called or what He required. And then the Holy Spirit said, well, if you're not going to agree with us about this, then we're going to stop telling you about the other things. And what happens is that there are people that will just begin to go so far off track because the Holy Spirit's no longer illuminating the things of God's Word. They're beginning to make up their own rules. And it's just about what, what they want this Word to say instead of what this Word really says. And knowledgeable people can do this. People who you would think would have as much training, education, and ability as, as anybody in the world can do this. So guess what? It can happen to anybody. You have to stay close to the Lord with a repentant heart. God, I, I don't want to take advantage, and I don't want to disagree. Help me where I'm struggling. Help me where I'm weak but I'm going to do what you call me to do. So there's a, another issue here, which is that uh, sometimes we were disobedient in areas of, of conviction, which can be sins of omission. You ever heard of the, the sins of omission? Sins of omission just means things you don't do. Uh, James talks about it this way. He says, if you know the thing you ought to do and don't do it, then you sin. You've heard that. So... Um, I realized this just, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago, because I had never really pinpointed this about myself, but I have a, an area of 
of conviction that uh, probably comes off like um, legalism, maybe, to other people, which is that I believe, for me, that not spending time with God in prayer and in His Word and worship, it, to not do that is a sin. Like, it's, a, it's a, to omit that on a daily basis, to me, is, is sin. Um, and what I mean is, like, a lot of people look at, like, spending time in the Bible and praying, um, like, that's, that's good to do. Like, it's a good discipline to be in. It's, it's a nice thing to do. It's healthy, like, eating your vegetables. Like, I should probably do that, right? A lot of, I think a lot of people think that way. Like, doing this would be good. Um, like, getting up early in the morning and showering or whatever. Okay, um, that would be a good thing to do, but it's not like a sin if you don't. In my opinion, my life, my conviction is that it is a sin not to do that. Like it, and that's true for me because God has convicted me to do that. doesn't mean that's true for everybody, but it's true for me. So when God convicts your heart about something and then you don't do it, then you're sinning. doesn't matter if it's true for everyone. doesn't matter if it's what the Bible says is the right thing for the whole congregation. If God convicts your heart and says, this is what I want you to do, and then you say, I'm not going to do that, then you find yourself sinning. Uh, same thing with, with tithing. For me, I, it's just one of those things where the Lord convicted my heart a long, long time ago that tithing is, is what you ought to do. It's just what you do. I don't, I don't think about it on a week-to-week basis like, well, should I, should I tithe this week or not? I don't know. I don't know if I want to give. Do I feel like giving? Do we have enough money to give? It's like that's just what you do because I'm, I've been convicted about that a long time ago. So I don't question, I don't try to figure out the formula, it's just, we just give. And for some people, that the sin of omission is this issue of, I know that God has called me to do certain things, but I'm not doing them because either I'm afraid to do them, or it's too hard to do them, or maybe somebody else has come along and said, you don't really have to do that. You ever had that happen? You feel really strongly that God has told you to do something, and then you say something to somebody, friend, a spouse, or whoever, and they say, well, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You've heard that before, right? And we all believe that. It's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life is I, I ought to be in church because you pay me to be here. So... <laughs> I mean, that's the issue, though. When we're gone, I still feel like i got to be in church. That's my conviction. Not everybody has the same conviction, and that's okay. But it's wrong for somebody to tell somebody else that their conviction doesn't matter. If you don't have the conviction, that's fine. Just keep that to yourself. Well, I don't have that conviction. But don't tell somebody else that they shouldn't have the conviction. So here's what happens as we get a little bit further into these issues, we have another issue, which is rebellion. So you have the sin of ignorance, you have the sin of omission, you have the sin of disobedience, and then you have this ultimate issue of rebellion. What is rebellion? Rebellion is when you... It's not really about the rules, it's about the rule giver. It's that you don't believe, trust, agree with the person of God. So um, this is why. We see non-Christian people, even atheist people, who have a very moral life. And, and we'll, I'll hear this argument sometimes. Well, that person doesn't believe in God, and they live better than most Christians that I know. You ever heard that before? What's going on there? Why, why is it that they would live that way? It's because they don't disagree with the rules. They may like the rules. They may like the, the moral code of Christianity or whatever religion or whatever. They may be conservative, they may be liberal, they may be whatever, but they, they don't have an issue with how people live, they have an issue with the, the, the idea of God himself. So they live morally, is that going to get them across the chasm? We understand that that's not the issue. They're in rebellion to God, which is a much bigger problem than how they're living. And here's the ultimate problem is that the Bible says there's one sin that is unforgivable. You've heard this? What is it? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
You ever wonder why that is? You ever afraid that you've committed it? I'll tell you what. I'm going to make it real simple, okay? Um, The Holy Spirit, what is his job? He's got three primary roles that he plays. One is to give us an understanding of the truth, right? Number two, he gives us conviction of sin. Number three, he gives us the empowerment through the gifts to serve God. Those are the three primary roles of the Holy Spirit. So if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, in other words, if you reject the role and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and what that means is you cannot understand what God's Word says. And you cannot repent because you have no conviction of sins. If you have no understanding of God's God's Word or the truth and you have no conviction of sin in your life, then you cannot be saved. So why is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit an eternal sin? It's it's because there's nowhere to go from it. I'm not saying it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle that says, I reject the work of the Holy Spirit. I I am blind to the work of the Holy Spirit. I am in rebellion to the work of the Holy Spirit. So you you have no access to Christ. You have no way to get to the truth. You have no possibility of a path to God because you have blocked yourself off from any possible route to the Lord. So it's an ultimate rebellion. It's, it, is, it is a satanic thing. Satan has rebelled against God ultimately. It doesn't matter what the rules are. He doesn't care if you follow the rules as long as you hate God. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the same kind of satanic rebellion against God. I don't want to hear from him. I don't want to know anything about him. I don't want to, I don't want to believe anything about him. It's a complete rejection, and that means that there's no way to have salvation. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's about. So are there sins that are worse than others? There's sins that have different consequences. Here's the thing. If you have any sense of of, uh, guilt or remorse about sin, if you have any glimmer of understanding of truth, then you have not committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I think it is very, very rare. But there are people that are in absolute rebellion against the Holy Spirit, and they, they can't come to God because they, they can't come to a place of truth, understanding, or conviction. So here's what happens is that for the rest of us who are still struggling with sin, <laughs> I love what the, the Word says. It says that uh, where sin grew, what? Grace grew even more. Grace abounded. Wherever sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so here's what the the Bible tells us is that wherever you have an understanding that there is sin, then you have the possibility to have that sin removed. Amen? This is is the good news part. (laughs) We're finally there. No one has sinned so much. No one has committed a sin so bad that God's grace is not sufficient to cover it, cleanse it, remove it, change it, restore you into a right relationship with God. Whether you're a believer who's who's walked with the Lord and and made some mistakes, whether you're a non-believer who's who's had a lot of past and worried about how that past is going to catch up to you, the grace of God is sufficient for that. It's enough. But you got to lay that thing down. You got to say, God, here's my life. Here's the sin I've committed. Here's the, I got to call it by name. I got to, I got to understand it. Okay. You got to realize what that sin is and you have to bring it to the Lord. It's not a, it's not a blanket thing. God, just please forgive me. He says, deal with the sins of your life. Call them out. Lay them down. Repent of them individually. And bring them to the Lord, and He will restore, and He will forgive, and He will cleanse, and He will heal. And you'll do this on an ongoing basis. And as you put those things to death in you, guess what? You, you do get strength and power, and, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to increase in a way that enables you not to be bound by those things anymore. Because the power of the Holy Spirit, the death of Christ on the cross, and your death with Him means that I am not a slave to sin anymore. They don't control me. They, they still are there. But as I lay them down, the whole, God smashes them. And he destroys them in my life. 
And I keep doing that day in and day out. So the, the heart of repentance is that it's not a one-time thing. I went to the altar and boom, I'm cleansed and I'm done. It's a daily thing. I'm bringing these things to the Lord on a regular basis. He's destroying sin in my life. He's making me in his image. And as he does that, as I am renewed in the knowledge of, of my creator, then I get to be a picture of Christ in the world. Now, here's the other thing. He talks about some other sins. He gives us a couple lists in this passage. He says, um, not only the sexual sins, but then he, in verse 8 he says, you must also put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And, and here's the thing. I didn't get a chance in the 8 o'clock to explain this as, as well as I should have. <clears throat> I ran out of time. I probably am running out of time now. But those sins, anger, wrath, malice, slander, etc., they have to do with the, the fellowship that we have with each other. <clears throat> you understand that what we're dealing with is a, uh, an inherent problem in the church. The, the church has this inherent issue. We want to be liked by each other. We want to be respected by each other. And so <clears throat> we're not always honest about the things that we're struggling with. Because somebody might look down on me. They might think less of me if they knew that I struggled with this thing. And so why is it that the, the world looks at the church and says that you're hypocrites? Is because a lot of the time we are pretending to be better than we are to each other. Maybe not even to the world as much as we are to each other because we're afraid of judgment. We're afraid not of God's judgment so much. We know that God will forgive us, but we're afraid of, of the judgment that might come from one another. People will oftentimes, I've heard this so many times, I was afraid to go to church because I was afraid of being judged. Have you heard that? What are they afraid of? They're afraid that they are a sinner and that somebody might know. <laughs> but they're also afraid that we're going to look at somebody new coming into the church and we're going to expect them to live a, a life that we, we oftentimes don't even live. And maybe it's unfair. Maybe that's not what's happening in a lot of churches that they're not coming in and being judged. But they feel that. They sense that they're, they're, that might be. And part of the reason why that might be is because sometimes we do act that way. We're not like we're, in, we're judgmental as necessarily but we act like we're better than, than we really are. We're not as honest about what we're struggling with as we should be. And here's what those sins of anger and malice and rage and slander and all that has to do with. It has to do with making sure that within the church body that we are in fellowship with each other in an honest and authentic way, that we're forgiving each other when we make mistakes or hurt each other or say the wrong thing or offend somebody or whatever the case may be, that, that we're willing to apply the same grace that God applies to us in our relationship with Him, we're applying that same grace to other people. That we're in this long term together, right? That in the church body, that we are all in the same boat, seeking to have a good relationship with the same God, and that we need each other to continue to spur each other on, to pick each other up when we're falling down, to call out sin that, that we shouldn't be putting up with, that we're applying the same grace and mercy. Let's, let's learn some things together about how we're supposed to live the Christian life and kind of encourage each other when, when we're struggling along, right? I mean, if we don't have that kind of fellowship within the church body, then what are we doing? You think about what is the church without that kind of honest fellowship that we ought to have with one another. We're, we're just coming to do a religious function. It, it wouldn't really be worth much. I mean, we can spread the gospel, and we can tell true things, but if we're not true and honest with each other about who we really are and what we're really dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, then we are failing as a church to be the body of Christ. And I'm not saying that we're doing that. I, I believe that we are pretty authentic here. But we got to make sure that we're keeping that front and center. We're honest about it. 
so that we can deal with sin in our life and not hide it. Satan loves for us to hide, to, to be isolated, to t- pretend to be something that we're not, because that's what he does. Amen? And Christ was, here I am. You say one thing, but truth's going to be found out. And here's what we want to do. We want to be more like Christ. And what I believe is that when the church does this, and I believe our church does do this, but when the church does this more and more, people see that and they, they respond to it. They, res- they respect that. You don't have to go out there and pretend to be perfect. You go out there and, and show people grace because you've received grace, then you're going to show people who Christ is and they're going to be drawn to Christ. Amen? It's powerful. I mean, it's amazing to understand. I don't have to live up to everybody's expectation. I just have to display Jesus in an authentic way. Father, we love you. We thank you that you care for us so much. We thank you that you uh, show us how to live a life worthy. Lord, (laughs) we don't want to pretend to be better than we are. We don't want to give excuses for where we're not doing the right thing, Lord. We want to be honest. We want to be authentic. Um, We want to grow. We want to be able to grow in in an environment where... Perfection is found only in Christ, not in in ourselves, where we can say, we're struggling with something, where we don't, maybe we don't understand something, maybe there's something we don't get, or there's an issue that we're just having a hard time controlling. Lord, we, we pray your Holy Spirit would move among us, Lord, draw us to you, draw us to one another, help us to find the same grace in our relationships with each other as we do with you. Lord, we're going to lay down those sins, the things that entangle. We're going we're to set them down. We're going to give them over to you. We're going to let you handle um, the forgiveness part. <laughs> we're going to learn what your word says. We're going to seek the power of your spirit to get those things deeper into our hearts. Thank you that you've taken away guilt and shame, condemnation. Lord, you've, you've taken them away and you've cast them as far away from us as the east is from the west. And now we get to live freely, Lord, in your presence. And we thank you for that. So continue, Lord, help us. Uh, draw us. Strengthen us, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning, I don't know what you're dealing with, this is a hard day to come to the altar probably. Somebody's going to think that you got big sins in your life. Guess what? So be it. What better time to just lay that down and say, God, I want to be done with that. I want to, I want to be dead to that. You got something that you're struggling with? Let us pray with you. Let us come around you. Let us help you. Let us encourage you. Um, Lay it down at the altar. Let's stand and sing.